Drinking secondhand tea. I need some sugar. Give me some sugar, baby. It's my birthday, but I'm the one bringing you cupcakes. I made these fucking cupcakes <laughs> from scratch. Yeah, you did. You know what that means? What does that mean? You don't fuck with these cupcakes. <laughs> my goddamn They're from scratch. <laughs> I grew the flour, <laughs> ground it in my hand mill, beat the sugar cane. I fed a goat wheat, <laughs> and then I picked the seeds out of his shit, <laughs> and I grew that wheat. And you know what I made from that wheat? Cereal that I ate to give me energy to make these cupcakes from a box. And you wheat. These I, motherfuckers are gluten free. Damn. <laughs> gluten free up in her. Welcome back to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome. I'm the Duchess. I'm the Duke. And we have made it. We have arrived. We have arrived at the number five zero. Episode 50. 50 baby. bitches. We did it. We did it 50 times. I know. We're still married. Well, technically, we've only done it 49 times until this thing happens. But 50. You know 50 what? I'm, I'm keeping that notch on my bedpost. 50. <laughs> 50 times. I'm claiming it, and you can't take it away from me. I didn't know that we would actually make it this far. I did not either. You know, I was just like, I want to do a podcast. I want to do a book club podcast. God damn it, 50 episodes and one year later, we're here. We're here. Still doing it. Still doing it. I think we're getting better. We're still married. I know. Even though, you know, you busted on Faramir a couple of times. Well, he deserved Things it. Things were touch and go. He's kind of a twit. We're not going there, man. We're trying to make it to 51 episodes. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, that was a long time ago. Not bust on Faramir. There's nothing wrong with Faramir. (laughs) Episode 50. It's not his fault his father's a dick. It's true. His brother's kind of a... Bully? I want to say kind of a Chad, because you know... (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean... You know, you know what it, I mean, right? It's okay. I can make I can make fun of uh, you know fictional characters, and you're threatening our marriage. But you bust out the chads, and now we just roll right along with it. That's all. That's what we do. Oh shit! We just move right on like nothing happened. <laughs> I mean, come on. No, it's true. It's totally he is true. He's kind of a chad. It's totally true. I'm right there with you. <laughs> Listen. You're not a Chad, by the way. You know, most of the Chads that I've known have, have been Chads. It's weird. Yeah, I mean, 
So, so yeah, I totally get it. Not all of them, by the way. You're not a Chad. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Episode 50. We are here tonight actually talking about Red Seas Under Red Skies by Scott Lynch. We are talking about chapters 14 through the end of the book. Yes, through the end. Are you glad it's to be through this conclu- book? Yes, I am. I'm, I'm glad to be through with this particular book. Do you know that this marks the fifth novel that we have covered in this podcast? You're right. If you count Ready Player One. You're right. And I, I've been excited to hear your reactions because the whole time you've been reading, you kept going, oh, I have feelings. I have feelings about this. So, so listen, there's something that happens in the beginning that of this section that I'm not happy with, and it kind of colored the rest of it for me. I gotcha. And I, I, I do, I am excited. We are going to move on to Republic of Thieves after this, I believe. That is what we're going to do, yeah. And I'm excited to hear your reactions to that book because I sat down today and paged through Republic of Thieves a little bit, kind of get a sense of where our breaks are going to be, how many episodes we're going to do. We are going to cover it in six episodes like we did in this one. Mm-hmm. And I got really excited to read this book again. I forgot how much I liked it. I liked it definitely more than Red Seas, uh, on par with how much I liked Lies of Locke Lamora. So That's I'm excited good. to see what your impressions of that one are. And some of the, I feel some of the problems that were seem to be going on in Red Seas kind of get resolved in the third book, in my opinion. So I'm excited to get to get into it. Interesting. Get into Great. it. So I'll go, I'll go into Republic of Thieves with an open mind. I mean... I'm down with looking at it as a whole. And, you know, every once in a while, you got to traipse through the forest with the wood elves, like in uh, The Fellowship of the Ring. All right. Yes. Yes. I every once in a while, you have to do 150 pages in the forest with the wood elves. And my 12-year-old reading self had a hard time getting through that. But you know what? It was worth it. Damn straight. And I'll do it again. So our next book club, we are going to be getting into Republic of Thieves by Scott Lynch. We are going to cover the prologue through and including chapter two. Yes. If you are reading along with us. Outstanding. You're, you, you're going to earn your halo. Yeah. If you stuck with us this long. So I will give our spoiler policy, which I can't imagine you would need it if you're tuning into this episode. Uh, if this is your first episode, what the hell are you doing? Go back. Go back to the beginning. But anyway, if it is... Liz has read these books multiple times. I haven't. So we will have spoilers through the end of Red Seas, Under Red Skies, but nothing in Republic of Thieves because I haven't read it yet. And we want I don't to be know. unspoiled. I can bullshit my way around it. It'd be funny. It would be funny. Wouldn't be accurate. <laughs> Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's, let's get into let's this section. Let's kick this forward. So this section... It starts at the beginning of part three. There have been three parts in this book, and we haven't talked about the names or, or the quotes that have been associated with each of those parts in this one. I know in Lies of Locke Lamora, we, we got really into the quotes from Richard III and found a lot of symbolism there. So let's go back for a second. Part one was called Cards in the Hand. Part two was called Cards Up the Sleeve. And part three, which we're starting now, is called Cards on the Table. And it has a really excellent quote that I feel goes along really well with what goes on in this section. 
It goes, I'm hard pressed on my right. My center is giving way. Situation excellent. I am attacking. Yes. And that's by uh, General Ferdinand Foch, maybe? He's a real Focher. He's a real Focher, dude. Did I say that right? Do you know who that is? Yeah, I know him. He's down the street. He owes me 20 bucks. <laughs> oh, 20 bucks. All right. Well, he said he had a, a great quote. Well, you and, know what I mean? And I like that. Can't it, take that away from him. It, it captures the spirit of Jean and Locke's situation. Starting this chapter, they're completely screwed and they're just kind of like, whatever. We're going for it. We're going for the whole shebang. Yeah. So we open up in chapter 14 and it's called Scourging the Sea of Brass. And we open with a meeting between Rodanoff and Colivard, who are two of the captains of the pirate ships. And they're basically planning to let Zamira panic the city a bit and then turn her over to Strago. So maybe he'll be happy with her and leave them alone. It's a peace offering of, of a sorts. And there's a lot of references to card games throughout this section, I'm noticing especially, and especially by Rodanoff. At one point in this section, he says, you can't buy in for the last hand if you don't get there in time to take a chair. So there's a lot of talk about gambling. And um, obviously, the deck of cards does factor in really significantly toward the end of this section anyway. Well, and there's certainly everybody who's kind of an actor in this is taking a massive gamble and you know not to to be overly titular. It's the first time I've used that phrase, but there's a lot of people putting their cards on the table, making audacious plays, and sometimes it works, you know, and sometimes you can die. Like. Yeah, it's a nice tidy little theme that plays out neatly throughout the whole book. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just kind of like that. Um, so after that scene, we pick back up finally with Locke and Jean and find out what happens. What's the ultimate result of the crossbow standoff? And right. I think this is the part that you that you have feelings about. So let's first yeah. kind of lay out there what happened. And then I want to hear your feelings. So we open the novel and in this section with... Locke and Jean being drawn on by some assailants. They've got crossbows. Their assailants have crossbows. They're all pointing the crossbows at each other. And they're staring each other down. And Jean indicates that he is turning on Locke. And he says, you've lost me, Locke. And he turns his crossbow and points it at Locke and says, now hand me your weapon. Okay, and Locke's like, he didn't flash me the hand signal that says he was lying. Oh, he's turned on me. And he gives him the weapon. And then as soon as the... Assailants let their guards down. Jean turns around and shoots them both in the head. That's the the plot wise what happens. But it we've is. been kept in suspense for this moment because the opening scene of the book is a a snippet of this scene. So we know that at some point this happens, and then we see this tension building between the two, building and building the entire book. So we're led to believe that Jean is Jean actually turning on him, or what's going on. And then it turns out that Locke just didn't see the hand signal. He's just got such a look on his face, you guys. He looks so grumpy. This is massive literary cocktease. It just is. It's one thing to have something that you tease for a long time and the ending of it not be super satisfying. It's a whole nother thing to te- to deliberately tease it at the very beginning, build 
up all this tension around what's going to happen for the entire novel and then not deliver on it. He missed the hand signal? Nah, man, that's cheap. It's just cheap. It's like he had a good idea and he couldn't figure out a way to really play it out in a satisfying way. So he... I missed the... Yeah, I don't know. I I didn't like it. I'm I'm not happy. I I think you're probably not the only one. I do want to read... now on page two of my little paperback version Mm -hmm. and something that caught my eye this time reading a little more carefully and I'm just going to read this. So they're in the place, they're pointing the crossbows Mm -hmm. and yada, 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 yada. yada. And Locke is saying to the assailants, you know, who, who sent you after us? What are they paying you? You know, maybe we can make, you know, a happy arrangement could be reached. Actually says John, I know who sent them. Really, Locke flicked a glance at Jean before locking eyes with his adversary once again. So Locke's not even looking at Jean most of this conversation Mm -hmm. until Jean then says, an arrangement has been reached, but I wouldn't call it happy. Locke says, Jean, I'm afraid you've lost me. No, Jean raised one hand palm out to the man opposite him. He then slowly, carefully shifts his aim to the left until his crossbow was pointing at Locke's head. The, up until this point, Locke hasn't been looking at Jean. So I think that's set up deliberately so that it would be believable that he could have missed a hand signal that was flashed. And I think it's more the point that we see that Jean and Locke in the past, Locke wouldn't have needed a hand signal to know that Jean wasn't going to shoot him. Mm-hmm. They're brothers, yeah. you know? And it just kind of shows how far these characters have come how much their relationship has changed that Locke would even think that about John would look, be looking for a hand signal. Yeah. And I know that that gets brought up in the conversation because they talk about it afterwards. And John's like, no, I gave you the signal. You know, you're a dumbass. Uh, you know, and they, and they bring that up directly that we wouldn't have needed a signal in the past. And very, and this book is very much about, their relationship and sort of that brotherhood. So I can sort of accept that. And even reading like in a reread, I can sort of see how that all ties together. I feel like in a reread, it probably would not bother me as much as it did. But in a first read, I just felt like it was cheap and it kind of colored the rest of the ending for me. Well, you have been really um, anticipating how that was going to turn out. Yeah, yeah. Well, how could you not? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's sort of like if George R. R. Martin started A Song of Ice and Fire, you know, with that creepy ass scene of the others on the, you know, on the far end of the wall. And then at the end, he was like, well, it was really just kind of a misunderstanding, you know. They th- it was they thought they saw something and but it was just you know shapes in the snow nothing real like, you know like it's just unsatisfying yeah no in my I, opinion. I I definitely do not disagree with you I think what I disagree with is the idea that and and obviously neither of us can know this but the idea that it was somehow. Scott Lynch had an idea and then he didn't know what to do about it. So he just kind of threw this out there. I see it as more, 
this was an attempt to deliberately craft the story about this relationship changing, maybe done in a way that wasn't satisfying or fun to read. But for me, I think this book is more about how this brotherhood between the two of them survives the trauma of losing the rest of their gang and grows into something else. No, I, I agree. I agree with that statement. I do. Uh, You know, when I sort of made that comment, I didn't really mean it in that way. I don't I don't actually think that that's what happened with Scott Lynch, that he started out with one idea, got to the end and didn't know what to do with it. I, d- I don't think that I don't think, you know, as much as I'm not happy with the choice he made here, he's a good writer. I don't believe that he would be so ham fisted as that. So but yes, I don't think. And again, for me, reading this book the first several times, I just wanted to find out what was going to happen. So I read through and read through really quickly. Um, I don't think I had the same experience, but I think you're not the only one who was a little let down by that. But we'll move on because there's a lot of plot that happens at the end of this book. Yeah, a lot of stuff packed into a tiny little. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, they shake hands and they're like, ha ha, no problem. I didn't really mean to shoot you in the head with a crossbow. They make it back to the poison orchid and they are not in the best mood things didn't go quite the way they wanted so they start um, decide to go sack a ship and their plan is to follow the letter of what Stragos wants them to do without actually giving him what he wants and thereby ending their usefulness their best plan at this point is to get as much access to Stragos and through Stragos, his alchemist, as possible, and hopefully be able to strike a deal or snatch him up somehow to get out of this situation. Yeah. So that's what they commence to do. Mm-hmm. They do this by sacking a few ships, but not in a way that is violent or going to be upsetting to anyone in the city. And then they have an idea to sack Salon Corbo. Yes, which I'm happy with. Right. This section, this scene for me is very, very satisfying. Salon Corbeau is the the little private city state slash town slash thing mm-hmm. that we saw earlier in the novel that holds the really, really perverse sort of version of these weird gladiatorial embarrassment things like, I'm not quite sure how else, how else to describe it, but just really humiliating right. things that they put poor people through for a pittance. And it's a really nice way to round off Locke's whole spiritual crisis arc, you know, because in the beginning, he's struggling with his faith and these mandates that he's supposed to keep as a priest of the unnamed 13th God, which Mm -hmm. are number one, thieves prosper, and number two, the rich remember. And so for him, having to leave Salon Corbeau with all of these rich jerks who are just basically the worst of the worst and have to leave them unscathed in pursuit of his scheme with Requin was really a walking away from his faith. And for him to then be able to come full circle and sack the, the town was, was just a really satisfying ending to that arc, I thought. Yeah, and I didn't, when I was reading it, it wasn't until they were kind of done with Salon Corbeau that I was like, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, you know, so so in the process of reading it, I don't think I caught how significant it was. It wasn't, like I said, until they were done that I was like, oh yeah, that's right. This is that, that city. But yeah, I thought it was, it was, it was good and satisfying that 
you know, they were able to go back and really, you know, do something about that. But Stragos isn't happy. So Stragos is pissed at this point as planned. They go back to him and, and he pretty much tells them, this is it. I am done with you unless you go out and actually kill some kill some people. So at this point, Jean and Locke are just sort of paddling in a circle, it feels like. They don't really know what they're doing. They're all just, they kind of barely have convinced Zamira to kind of help keep them afloat. It's really not moving forward until along comes Rodanoff. Yeah. And this part was was enjoyable. So I feel like Stragos as a character... Stragos and Requin as sort of the villains of this book, I don't find either one to be very satisfying. You know, I like that, again, you have kind of this dueling jackasses that you have to sort of deal with. Just like in Lies of Locke Lamora, you have, you know, there are several bad guys. There's Barsavi, there's the Grey King, there's the um, the Bonds Magi, you know, the Duke, there, there's all these people who, like in the case of the Duke, through just being a, a rich person doesn't care about anybody, or down to the Grey King and the Bonds Magi, these people who are just directly evil. But they're all different and sort of unique. I, you know, Requin and even more so Stragos are... Just very cardboard, particularly Stragos. And that whole scene with, you're not doing enough, go out and kill some people. I was uh, not super satisfying, but I'm not, I'm just not a fan of Stragos. And it, it, the whole interactions, all the interactions in the Moan Magisteria, other than having a kick-ass name, other than that, I didn't find them super satisfying. But the part with Rodinoff and the fight scene on the boat, that was very good. That I enjoyed. I think Rodinoff feels more real as a character, even though we've spent far less time with him, because we get a little bit of his inner rumination. Yeah, yeah. You know, and we can sympathize with him a little bit. He's torn about having to go after Zamira. Of all the captains, he probably considers her a friend the most, but he really does believe that she is putting his way of life in peril yeah. and putting his ship in peril. And he didn't agree with the last time they tried to go to war with the Priori and the Arcanate, and he doesn't agree with it now. So he really does feel like he's fighting for his way of life. And so we do have sympathy for him. And also, I just so picture him as Tormund Giants Bane that I, <laughs> I'm just like, I'm, I'm a little bit Team Rodanoff. I'm sorry. <laughs> just want him to win a little. Don't want him to get his ship burned out from under him. But I'm jumping ahead. Rodanoff makes you as wet as a baby seal. <laughs> no, not that kind of. Not, <laughs> it's not like that between us, okay? <laughs> but I, I really like how this chapter is written. And chapter 15 is called Between Brethren. And basically, it's, it's the battle of the ships. It's mm-hmm. Rodanoff's ship coming after Zamira. And it's just a full-on naval battle extravaganza yeah and i've said spaceships there would have been lasers firing (laughs) yeah instead there's just weird attack birds and masts the birds were a little weird (laughs) i was like because i was like i was convinced that the cages contained 
those like stiletto wasp things. Oh, that would have been a callback. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that part when they cracked it up, well, for, and when, so I'm jumping ahead of myself. So I was convinced the cage was filled with the stiletto bees and I'm thinking all the while, how are they going to control them? That's like, that's a bad idea because that's going to backfire, <laughs> right? You know, cage of bees is always a bad it's idea. Never good, everyone. It never turns out good. Life hack: cage of bees is a bad idea. You know, you're like, you're like, I'm gonna bring my cage of bees to school today, and if she gives us a pop quiz, <laughs> I'm cracking that fucker open. Stiletto bees for all of you. <laughs> And that's why you didn't make it to college. <laughs> so, so true. So, yeah. So the birds were a little weird because I was like, where the did these birds come from? I don't ever remember them ever being mentioned before. Right. And it's just sort of like, and here are these big ass birds, you know? <laughs> oh, and by the way, there's big ass birds. That's something Glenn Cook would do. Like not explain <laughs> anything to you. And have these random fucking things show up and you just be like, oh, okay, I guess that's real now. And <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so so um so that was a little weird. But I enjoyed the fight. I've said it before, like I'm not generally a massively huge fan of just big combat action scenes. Uh, don't get me wrong, I don't dislike them, but they're just not like my favorite part. But I enjoyed this. Like, I thought this was really well done. I did, too. And and the sailing talk grew on me a little bit, again, because it was in the context of something important happening. Yeah, yeah. You do get a sense of how difficult it is to do what these characters are described as doing. Yeah, she kind of pulled a crazy Ivan. She pulled a crazy Ivan. She did, didn't she? With, like, zero engines on her vessel. Yeah. Just you know? a couple of anchors and some crafty sailing. Right. So that was that was kind of cool. So, you know, Rodinoff is coming like he's going to he wants to broadside her so he can have the side of his ship. Yeah, alongside his numbers the can take. Yes. Can become an advantage for him. Exactly. And she's able to at the last minute turn her ship quickly. Yeah. She pulls a 300 and makes a narrow channel, you know, like pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool. And then there's attack birds. Yeah. And that well, and the other part of it to me was like it, it wasn't even just like kind of that initial phase. But it was that even after that initial collision where both of them knew what was going to happen, there was still kind of more that she had to do. Like she she had to then fight to keep her nose against him. Right. You know, and, and like I just I thought that was all quite interesting. And then obviously it ends in a particularly gruesome way. It does. If that the whole... I fucking called. I called it. You did call it. I called that shit. So great. Did call it. How was my poker face last week when you said Esri's going to die? How was it? I, I mean. You had no idea? I had no idea. Yeah. You had no idea that I was going that crafty bastard over there. <laughs> no, I didn't. How did he figure it out? No, I didn't. No, I, I didn't no. figure it out. Yeah. I didn't. Eh, you know, you, you don't watch as many horror movies. It's true. It's I a, cannot watch horror movies. See, and it's a class. As soon as they start doing it, someone's <laughs> going to die. Um, so I like how this chapter is crafted. I think it's really well put together. I love how the tension is built by 
switching back and forth between the scene on the Dread Sovereign and the scene on the Poison Orchid. Yeah. So the, the, the boats are approaching each other and we see Rodanoff talking to his crew and then we see Zamira talking to her crew and it switches that perspective back and forth and just really builds up that tension nicely. You know, we have a little scene where right as Zamira is kind of giving her go get him speech her son comes out and she picks him up yeah and you're like oh my gosh there's children on this boat i forgot yeah. about that and you know that's exactly what my experience was too that i'm reading through and then you know mommy the noise and i was just like oh you know and then and then the stakes are quite real for you because you're right. like you're like oh shit if they sink this boat i mean we care about all fictional life True. But we care about young fictional life a little bit more. It's true. It's a little more upsetting. <laughs> you know? So, yeah, this section was really well written. It it was definitely the highlight to me of, of the section that we read. You know, and I feel like it was supposed to be all the stuff later that happens with Requin and all the stuff that happens with the Archon. I feel like that's kind of what was supposed to be the more exciting part of the book. And there were parts of that I liked too, don't get me wrong. But to me, this was the best part. This was a really well done chapter. Yeah, yeah. And of course, it culminates with Zamira starting to beginning to look like she's going to take the day. Mm-hmm. And Rodanoff is pulling out the last card that he has in his sleeve, which is Utgar, who he has planted on Zamira's ship who is holding what we now realize is something called a shipsbane sphere. Yeah. And it's an, a sphere filled with alchemical fire, basically. It's like magnesium like fire. Like magnesium yeah. fire that will just burn the hell out of any ship that it's on. Mm-hmm. And Utgar is standing there. He's holding this um, holy hand grenade of Antioch. <laughs> I never thought of that, but it, it's, it is the holy hand kind grenade. It is, with a really long fuse. Back off! <laughs> I shall count to three, and three shall be the counting. <laughs> I won't do the whole thing. Thanks. <laughs> do it later for me. Okay. But uh, unfortunately, he gets shot with a crossbow. He drops it. The sphere falls into the hold where the children are, and... Before anyone can really properly react, Esri goes after the sphere, after punching Jean really hard in the stomach so that he can't stop her. And she, she it, then it's a horrific scene described as she comes up with her hands melting off and manages to fling the sphere onto the Dread Sovereign. After which a, another brief battle it ensues, but they are able to escape with the dread sovereign i suppose sinking down sinking yeah i think the assume. dread yeah i think the dread sovereign's gone poor Rodenoff. and then never it's get all to see those super sad again. because jean is really sad yeah that was that was a pretty horrific scene i mean the you know it end good good chapter ended you know on quite the sad note and then there's even more sadness to come because you know it's not just that esri died it's that like 40 people died on Zamira's boat. Right, like half the crew. Like half the crew. I think he said it was almost 50, actually. Right. You know, and then they have to spend all pretty much the entire remainder of the day, you know, saying prayers and putting people out to sea. And it was interesting to me how Locke talked about that he just sort of, until he got to Esri, 
by the end, he was just sort of leaden and going through through the motions. You know, that he's saying the prayers, putting people out to sea, but, you know, 17 people into, you know, burying 50 people, he's not even feeling it anymore. And I, and to me, that was a pretty powerful statement because I think if you were actually in a situation like that, you would just have to sort of get numb to it. Like, and that, and that's almost more scary than anything else. I agree. That was a very moving scene. And after it, there's a quick little conversation between him and Zamira that really stuck out to me this time through Mm -hmm. where she just says, first off, he opens up to her and she's calling him Ravel. So far, he has never told her his name that he's used in his childhood. We know it's not his real name. But he says to her, my friends call me Locke, Locke Lamora. So that's Mm -hmm. a big step for him. Yeah. You know, because in the beginning, he sees Zamira as a mark, someone he's going to play, and then he decides to live in accordance with the mandates of his god, that she's a thief, so he's going to be on her side. But now he's fully just told her, tells her everything, Um, tells her all the stuff Mm -hmm. about Requin. And once he does that, she turns, she says, you know what, I I need to go just, I just need a break. I need to go be with my children you have the deck. Yeah, that was interesting. So like there's this full circle moment again with his arc closing of of he's thrust unwillingly into this position of trying to be captain of a ship, trying to be in command of a ship. And he goes about it not in a way in keeping with his faith. Yeah. But once he finally kind of lets go and decides to keep those mandates, he ends up right where he was supposed to be. Yeah. The other part in this scene, and I don't know why it occurred to me in this scene as opposed to any other one, but we talk about the two mandates of the Crooked Warden, and the first being that the thieves prosper, and the second being that the rich remember. And there's nothing that I recall anyway that specifically says that one's more important than the other. However, I sort of feel like intuitively you would think that the first being the first is more important than the second. And it just sort of, to me, in this novel, you have Jean and Locke taking on those different sort of characteristics where Jean is about Thieves Prosper. And Locke, who is supposed to be the priest, who is supposed to have the greater moral authority in this relationship when it relates to that, uh, to the Crooked Warden, is the one who is overly focused on the second mandate, the one that I'm assuming is the less important mandate, the rich remember, and how much bad shit happens as a result of it. Like how much heartache and destruction could they have avoided if Jean was more the immoral authority and Locke wasn't? If they weren't so embroiled in you know, the rich remember as opposed to thieves prosper. I don't know. It's all hypothetical. It's interesting. But it just is sort of the way I envisioned it sort of in that moment. Yeah. But it's, it's for me, it's just, it's very satisfying to see Locke kind of come to the end of that angsty sort of arc. Yeah. He finally had to go burn his Cure t-shirt. <laughs> right. <laughs> he, Put away the patchouli, Locke. <laughs> he took his uh, 1991 disintegration cassette tape and 
put it away in storage. <laughs> so chapter 16 is called Settling Accounts. It starts with them deciding, basically feeling very hopeless, and then making a plan as to how they're going to get at Stragos. So it's kind of a, for me, this was kind of a satisfying little scene. We kind of see Locke in one of these moments where they're like, well, well, I guess we'll just go kill ourselves. And then he's like, no, wait, I have an awesome idea. Yeah, and that was interesting to me because as he's going through the sort of the mental exercise, he's like, there's got to be something we're not thinking about. You know, and he's like, who's another party? Who's somebody else involved in this picture that we've been talking about? Remember that thing? That thing. Back in college. Back in college. We used to eat it all the time. All the time. <laughs> so, you know, he's going through this exercise and he's like, the Priori. And I'm like, son of a bitch. <laughs> there is a whole, like, another party here that we have completely forgotten about. You know, there is somebody else sitting at the table that nobody else is paying any attention to. And it's a nice little transition it here. Is. We've got this, the end of this section. They're talking about going and trying to find one of the Priori and they decide which one they want to target. And uh, Locke says, they'll see us if we have to crawl through their goddamn windows. And, <laughs> and the next scene is literally it. them crawling, crawling through, through a window. window. Yeah, absolutely. And, and a manservant going, what the? And one thing you have to give to Scott Lynch I don't know of anybody else. I don't know of any other book or series of books that has such good transitions. It's great transitions. And and it's such a fun little, like, after all the depressing stuff that's just happened, it's a really entertaining, tiny little scene where they break into this Priori's house and they say, congratulations, we're reverse burglars. <laughs> yeah. Here to give you 50 gold solari. <laughs> and then he coshes him. Yeah. And I love the word kosh. It's a good word. Okay. Kosh. Kosh. It's a good Don't word. Don't kosh your sister, for goodness sake. <laughs> I'm trying it out. So they break into this Priori's house, Gordo the Elder. And have we heard of Gordo, Gordo the Elder before? I believe he has been just briefly mentioned as ah. being one of the Priori. We actually hear about him in the Lies of Loch Lamora. Stop it. We do. Get out with all your knowledge. You know, you know why? Because in the church within a church and underneath the church of Paralandro, that big, beautiful table that they took off that boat and <gasps> sunk belonged to Cordo. No! Yes, it was what? his table. Scott Lynch, you magnificent bastard. Right? Love it. He knows how to use a name and then use it again in the next book. That's, that's what I call a callback <laughs> right there. So, yeah, we've heard of him before. It's fantastic. I love it. So it turns out that Gordo the Elder was also... It's Cordo, right? Not Gordo? No, is it Gordo? I've been calling him Gordo in my head. Don't do a Jean-Jean thing I'm to me. I'm pretty sure it's Cordo. It's Gordo. Gordo. I'm it up. Gordo's like that dude I hung out with in college. <laughs> it is Cordo. Damn it. Gordo! Damn my small print little paperback. <laughs> I'm calling him Gordo. I don't Gor- care. Gordo is the guy in college who sold all the acid. <laughs> totally who that is. Gordo. <laughs> he was a white dude with an afro. Yeah. <laughs> Gordo. He was always at college, but you never saw him in any classes. You never went to class. Yeah. <laughs> like like five hemp necklaces. That's right. Yeah. That's really like 
like preternaturally good at hacky sack. <laughs> so like the key is, man, you got to make sure the sack is like halfway flat. And then that takes a lot of like the momentum out of it. And we're flat shoes. You hung out with Gordo a lot. There was a kid I hung out with in college whose name was Funk. You had the cool friends in college. <laughs> we hung in the same circles. I know, but you were in the cooler half of the circle. <laughs> if it was a Venn diagram, I was like over in the uncool half of the Venn diagram. But your side of the Venn diagram had better food. I was at, Yes, we did. We did. <laughs> we were mostly chicks, so... Oh, digression. All right. So Gordo slash Cordo, whatever, <laughs> or whoever. They Gordo, be- we're going to take this city over. Come on, brah. <laughs> Road trip. We're going to the Mon Magisteria. <laughs> they break into Gordo's bedroom, surprising his maid. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's really- what are you doing, Gordo? You can't be sleeping. And they uh, commence to convince him that they are not here to kill him. He assumes that they are because it turns out that he is the one who has been sending assassins after them. Yes, yeah. After the Bonds Magi apparently told him that Locke and Jean were there to mess with him and to mess with the priori. So it was not some weird double-sided thing from Moraine or Moraines. Right. Thing. So I got that one wrong. So that's a little little loose end tied up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a, they have an amusing exchange where Locke, in convincing him, just hands him a dagger and says, look, there, what sort of whimsical assassin am I? These guys must have, like, really trustworthy faces for fucking thieves. Because everybody, after, like, five minutes of talking to him, is like, okay. Well, I can I, see it your way. I mean, I definitely think that that's their gift. No, I, yeah, and I get that. And that's, you know, brought up earlier in the book where, you know, John's like, you know, when the mutiny happens and John's like, yeah, but if you can get up there and talk to them. If we, they'll let you talk, we might have a chance. We might have a shot, you know. So so I, I get that. But still, they must have some sort of like magical, like he must have the pup, puppy doggest eyes of, you've He's ever seen. He's David Tennant. Of course. Listen, people are going to listen to him. David Tennant can't be Elodin Anlock. Why not? I because I said so. He can, and he will. You hear me, David? Listen, everybody knows. Call your agent. Everybody knows that Locke is a young Sam Rockwell. No. I'm shaking my notes at you. We're going to have to move on. I'm sorry. All right, move on. So they, because of their trustworthy phases that resemble David Tennant, they're able to convince the Gordos slash Cordos, because at this point, Gordo the Younger has come in. Cordo the Younger. It's funnier to call him Gordo. I'm going to do it. Little Gordo. (laughs) Little Gordo comes in and they, they all just basically powwow. They're like all cool with each other. Daggers being passed around. Everybody's mellow. Gonna hot box this tent. <laughs> How come there are so many tents in like in sort of my internal like fantasy world? I don't know. There's a lot of tents. <laughs> a lot of tents. 
it's sort of a Lawrence of Arabia vibe going on in there. I, it's it's because it's always spring break. <laughs> we couldn't afford hotels on spring break. You no, guys. we can't. We can't. Anyway, thirteen dollars a day, marathon key. Dang straight. <laughs> anyway. They halfway lay out their plan, as often happens in these kind of books. Let me, I'm going to tell you what we're going to do. Whoosh, 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 whoosh. Then we don't get to hear it. Yeah. But they know that's going to involve asking Stragos to arrest them at the Sin Spire. So then we get sort of this other, this plan developing piecemeal where we get to see bits and pieces of it, which um, Scott Lynch is very good at, just kind of building up your anticipation about what's going to happen. Locke and John head over to the Sin Spire. They're like, oh, no, the eyes of the Archon are after us. No, you got to save us. Save us. So they take them up to Requin's study and trap them in there. And Salandri's like, basically like, I have you right where I want you. And Locke (laughs) is like, no, I have you where I want you. Uh, And my name (laughs) isn't, my name was not Leo Canto from the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever heard of super glue? <laughs> exactly. I'm going to put this helmet on. Where's your eye beam? <laughs> Somebody get me a canoe. I want to cut the bottom out of it. <laughs> so Locke and John put their cards on the table, finally. This has been their big play all along to get them both into that office alone so that they can steal Requin's paintings. Yeah. Mm. Now that, so... I've complained a little bit about the ending, but that part I really enjoyed. That was kind of cool. Yeah, I like that. Like, you know, just a gr- a great misdirect of it was never about your fucking fault. Your right. fault's impenetrable. Right. Like, it's always been impenetrable. It's always going to be impenetrable. Now, I-, I was I really wanted to see them glue her metal arm oh, to the desk, though. They weren't going to do that. Why? That would be too. See, we have a fundamental difference here, and that I don't see Requin and Salandri as bad guys. You don't? No. No, I don't. I mean, collection of hands Not aside, s- I just, I don't see them as, as the bad guy. I see them as like, but then I didn't really see Kappa Barsabi as a bad guy either. You know, I saw him as sort of a neutral, like he wasn't super on their side, but they also weren't like, antagonists you know bag of glass dude i mean bag of glass and collection of hands aside they weren't really that bad i mean they're not the bad guys okay (laughs) and for me i was gonna say this later but i'll say it now i kind of like that requin and salandri of any character in this book those two kind of got the happy ending well i'm glad that they had their little romantic thing you know I don't know. I just like their story. They're kind of kind of us against the world and, you know, her being burned by acid and him loving her anyway. And she was a spot. I don't know. I just kind of I like their story. I like that they kind of got it over on everyone, honestly. So, so for so me, when you watch Natural Born Killers, Mallory and then Woody Harrelson's character, those were definitely the good guys, right? Uh, no, it's not for me. It's not the same. You know, because Salandri and Requin aren't out wantonly murdering. No, they just bring the people fun of it. into their office to murder them in a civilized manner. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Okay. All right. So yeah, I didn't you see know, Requin and Salandri as the bad guys. Come to think of it, not that bad at all. <laughs> right. I'd invite him over for dinner. <laughs> 
So anyway, that's why I wouldn't want to see Solandri's arm get glued down. You know, I mean, it's not killing her, just gluing her to the table. I think that would have been funny. <laughs> Here, put this helmet with the weird brick on top of it on your head. <laughs> Either way, Solandri uh, is stymied and they are able to escape by revealing the repelling gear that they have hidden inside that suite of chairs that they gave him so long ago. So I knew so there was going to be something in the chair. Right. The repelling gear makes sense, you know. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, that was pretty cool. And they are arrested and brought to Stragos, who tells them that they are not getting no antidote, no way, no how. Allow me to put you into the incredibly slow <laughs> dipping mechanism. Exactly. Let me explain my plot to you. <laughs> but, you know, Stragos is an explainer. And again, I just, uh, I so see him as like a Stannis character. Like he is so. You don't bring Stannis up in Stragos in the same sentence. I- I'm sorry. Ever again. Like kind of the same guy. Oh, my God. <laughs> what? I-, I might have to step away from the podcast. You put Stannis and Stragos in the same. How can you not see how similar they are? Ooh. <laughs> Look, they're both completely self-involved and obsessed with being in power. And they have this convoluted way of thinking that they have adapted to convince themselves that it's okay to do terrible things in order to be to be in power. And they've both just completely bought their own hype. So I can, I can see those connections, okay? But that's sort of like, you know, that's sort of like saying the Hound and Darth Vader are the same because they have scars. I mean, of the two, I would say that Stannis is the worst. Okay, show Stannis. He's getting up. Better. Show Stannis is who we're talking about, by the way. It's a little better. I don't know. Just Stannis actually has some depth to him, and Stragos really doesn't. I mean, I never was a Stannis fan, especially show Stannis. He burned his daughter alive. Yeah, but that's not real. That's not going to happen in the books. He burned his daughter alive. Oh, Show Stannis is a real Chad. He's a real Chad. Some of my best friends are Chads, so it's okay for me to make those jokes. (laughs) (laughs) Let's move forward. Um, We're going to get sued by somebody at the end of this podcast. (laughs) If your name is Chad, you're allowed to make Chad jokes, okay? What if you're a Chad from Sweden who happens to be a chiropractor? You do not like us. You are giving us one goddamn star. <laughs> anyway, where were we? I don't You even got know. really mad at me. Who, you want to bust on Faramir a little bit? Would no. That make you feel better? No, I don't feel the need. <sighs> All right. <laughs> So anyway, for me, this is one of the most satisfying scenes in the books. They're brought to Stragos. He tells them that, yeah, I'm not going to give you that antidote anyway, because I'm really mad about how you killed all those guards in my secret prison. And Locke and John barely have time to go, 
What are you what? talking are you about? about? When one of the eyes turns around and punches Stragos in the face. That's right. Mwahaha. And we find out that in actuality... So yeah, this is in, I believe it's section nine. And it starts out with the weirdest sentence in the entire series so far. You didn't like that? It said, and this is how they did it. And like... Just that sentence and the way it was such a different, such a departure Mm -hmm. from the rest of like the tone and the narrative and the perspective. Like, because you always have this sort of like detached narrator who's just like a camera, you know, and you really don't even get into people's brains all that much. Like you get the, the occasional comment of like, you know, in this time, Locke legitimately had no idea, but you really don't get a sense of the narrator, uh, like the narrator is about as invisible as you can be. Right. And then this sort of sentence where it was like, and this is how they did it, as though it's like a storyteller telling me something. It was just such a departure that uh, it was sort of jarring. I had to like go back and be like, what, did I read that right? Yeah, that was an odd sentence. It didn't put me off or anything, but... No, I mean, it wasn't really a big deal, but it was... It it stood out to me as something that was sort of weird. I liked, uh, especially when, especially when you consider how much this book will jump around forward, backwards, and has no problem doing that. Um, though I get that this is you know not like an interlude, so I guess he felt like he had to frame it up a little bit. Weird sentence, not a big deal, um, but I, I did think it was clever how they pulled it off. Yes, and even more clever. So what they explain is that after Locke and John get arrested by the eyes of, I almost said the eyes of Sauron, the eyes of the Archon, they are intercepted by the Gordos. I mean, they're basically the same thing, if you think about it. Basically. The Archon and Sauron, practically the same character. Pretty much. So they're intercepted by Cordo the Younger, and... They have a team of people who are ready to impersonate the eyes, only they just need the masks. Apparently the masks are one one per secret constabulary mm-hmm. person and no faking them. So they're able to then impersonate them and then pull this switcheroo. And when Cordo the Younger tries to double cross them, he proves that he's a complete amateur because oh. Locke has been thinking. So this is so cool. Because Cordo the Younger turns around and says, you know, we actually don't need to keep up our bargain with you because there's more of us than you. We're just going to go ahead and kill Stragos. And Locke says, you amateur, you know, you think that... Was it, I thought it was John. One of them. What, one yeah. of them, basically, pulls out a letter from Requin, air quotes, stating that they're not to be harmed and whoever harms them will, you know, suffer his great displeasure. So this is the letter that he forged way back on the boat. Mm -hmm. And it just makes you think like, wow, was he like that many steps ahead? It's pretty cool. It is. So they're able to get one serving of the antidote that the alchemist has on him. And they go to take the alchemist with them so he can make up another. The alchemist tells them that there's no name for this poison. It's one that he invented on his own. Mm. It's all, there's no notes or anything. Can't be copied. So of course, of course, you know he's going to die. Yeah. Right. So Moraine's like, uh-uh, 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 ain't having that. 
Yeah, kind of incomprehensibly, she decides she needs them out of the picture. So, you know, at, at this point, you probably know about as much as I do, you know, as far as this book. Um, yeah, this was another one of the things that was very, another one of the things that I found frustrating about this ending. Now, I'm choosing to not get overly upset about it because I feel like it's going to come back in the next book. So the sense that I got was that Moraine's, whoever she works for, it seems like maybe they would not want it known that they partner with Stragos, especially as he's losing power. So she kind of makes a decision there in this moment that everyone who's been involved has got to go. So she kills the alchemist and tries to dispose of the poison or the antidote. She's unable to, but before she escapes, they see that she has a tattoo of a grapevine around a sword. And I went back and I scrubbed through both books trying to find any reference to it. It's a new thing. Yep, no reference. In fact, the word grapevine only comes up one other time, and it's in reference to a family sigil who is the aunt, I believe the aunt, of Duke Nicavante. Hmm. But it was a, um, but it was grapevine and some on like a shield or something like that. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't a sword. Now, if it ends up being some connection to Duke Nicavante, that wouldn't surprise me. And if Duke Nicavante was trying to, you know, make a ploy to somehow take over Talvarar, wouldn't shock me. But I wouldn't call it enough evidence to really make any sort of a real guess at it. Hmm, interesting. Well, Moraine gets away with her secrets intact, but Stragos does not. He gets put in a sack and hauled off as a death offering for Esri and dumped at Zamira's feet. Yeah. So that's a little satisfying that as was. well. Mm-hmm. And, and I really love that Locke is able to look at him and say, I was willing to walk away. Re- yeah, remember? Remember? Yeah. I was going to let you keep what you had, but you had to be an asshole. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty satisfying. And Zamira <clears throat> tells him that she is basically going to chain him up, throw him in the darkest hole of her ship, and let him stay there until his clothes rot off. And just just Some basically dark ass shit. go mad and die. Yeah. And Anna, and she says that one of the best lines in the book is, oh, how you'll scream. But that's all right, because we can always do with a little music at sea. It's pretty hardcore, Zamira. That's hardcore. At this point, Locke and Jean then take their leave of her. She and, sails off into the sunset. And so two things have have sort of happened here at the end of this book. That is that they have managed to make another really powerful enemy in Requin, because we find out later that Requin has, has more power than we realized. So Requin meets with the Priori to discuss... The changing of power in Telvarar. And, well, and basically he lines them up and says, okay, here's what's going to happen. You know, since I'm the one with the vault with all your shit in it, and apparently everyone's intimidated by him. Uh, well, and also he points out that the populace aren't going to be happy with just the Priori running everything. So he convinces them to set up a sort of secret police 
and to have Salandri be in charge. Yeah. And so he kind of maneuvers this very plum assignment mm-hmm. for her. Absolutely. And, and he says, you know, don't you think that she should have the best office? Yeah. And a really nice country house. They're and... just good people with a secret police. Exactly. Wait, you were sarcastic there. <laughs> I do. I like their story. I like that they're just like... Those little motherfuckers who stole the pet. Like, oh my gosh. He's like, I have to admire those cheeky little bastards, you know? Yeah. I, I love it. I think it. I, I'm i team Requin and Salandri. <laughs> Go Relandri. So, <laughs> so, yeah. So, Jean and Locke have managed to make another powerful enemy, I think, in Requin. While, yeah, he says, you know, he throws a little bit of like, ah, you almost admire them. Mm -hmm. If he has an opportunity to string them up, he's gonna. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Although the reason for him to not like them is not as strong as we maybe initially thought it was. True. Because it turns out that the paintings they stole from his office were actually not the original paintings. Very, very clever forgeries. Very clever. And, and I, I thought that was a clever bit of storytelling. Yeah. I to not that. have Jean and Locke sail off with a fortune after all of their trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I enjoyed that too. So the other part I was going to say is in addition to making a powerful enemy, they have another ally in Zamira. Yes. Wow. It took you a long time to get that out. I kept interrupting you. That's okay. <laughs> Very well put. Though. I've been around the block. Excellent. Well, and they managed to, because of being able to deliver the Archon, they really kind of managed to almost sort of save the Ghost Winds. You know, so I would imagine all the pirates out there, all the now four remaining pirates out there, it's a very, very small pirate class, you know, are going to look favorably upon John and Locke. So don't know if that's ever going to come back again, but they made an ally, they made an enemy. And that's sort of the net sum of the end of this book. Mm Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the book ends with them basically, and it's another nice transition between sections here. The last line of the last chapter is Salandri saying to Requin, it's a shame about your paintings, and him saying, what do you say we go down to the vault and bring up the real ones? And she says, what do you mean the real ones? (laughs) And then the first line of the epilogue is Locke saying, what the hell do you mean reproductions? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I just love those clever transitions. He's a... Quite good at it. So they find out that the the paintings that they were hoping to sell for 30,000 Solari end up getting them 2,000 because they are forgeries. And I thought it was interesting that he noted that apparently, just like the con man game is not something that's been seen in this world before, painting forgeries are also noted as being very rare. And Locke says, painting forgery? Like, is that done? I've heard of it with furniture, but... And the man who is supposed to be buying these paintings says it's very rare, but it has been done before. So it almost makes you think that. And I get that this isn't the easiest thing to do, but it almost makes you think Jean and Locke should have been like, fuck you. We'll take our forged paintings and we'll sell them to somebody else who's dumber than you. (laughs) Who's dumber than you. Who else has got, who knows who else is going to have 30,000 Solari? Well, and they might, they wouldn't have gotten 30,000, but they might have been able to pull off 10 with somebody who didn't who didn't know. But uh, but that also would require an awful lot of them, you know, 
boating around and trying to find somebody to do that with when we get to the next part. And, and that is when we come to the realization that they are still poisoned. You did air quotes around the word poisoned. I did. So yes, they, they, they set off on their yacht that they were planning to take with Esri, but they go ahead and decide to do it anyway. And there's a very poignant little scene where the person selling them the yacht says, are you going to require assistance? And Locke says, we had expected a third, but the two of us will suffice. We're always sufficient. And here we see a coming to the end of this, the kind of conflict arc between Locke and Jean, and they reaffirm that they're family. Even though they get very angry with each other when Jean tries to force Locke to drink the antidote and is about to hold is said you're you're going to drink it i'm bigger than you there's literally nothing you can do to me mm-hmm. and Locke is like it's too late you already drank it yeah <laughs> I, I slipped sn- it in I your wine slipped it in your wine and Jean says you bastard and Locke says gentleman bastard mm-hmm. and Jean says i want to hug you and i want to tear your god's damned head off and Locke says as near as i can tell that's the de- definition of family And the book ends with them sailing off somewhere new. So again, I like the closure of some of these arcs that we had. Locke and John started off having lost the majority of what they considered to be their family, struggling to find out how to be a new family, Mm -hmm. struggling with several different surrogate families. Yeah, they're going to have to learn to live with their new stepdad. I mean, sometimes that's what you have to do. That's what you have to do. Look, he's never going to be your real dad. I'm never going to be your real dad, but I can still be a father to you. New family. Okay. Sorry, you never had that experience. No, I didn't. So to me, that's funny. Okay. In the darkest of ways. Okay. It's just a nice theme. Of the it book. is. It is. I enjoyed it. So still leaves the question of what happened with the poison? Well, I guess we'll find out in book three. So one of two things happens. Either book three opens, well, I guess three technically, either book three opens and we find out Locke's dead, which I don't think is going to happen. Book three opens and Locke has gone some, he's frozen in carbonite. Like (laughs) he's in some... Frozen in carbonite. Weird place where Jabba, you know, says he still owes me money, you know. Uh, You know, and then we find out that Sabatha is there in a bikini, you know, the golden. (laughs) Yes. Right? Keep talking. I'm I'm down. Let's rewrite book three right now. So it's (laughs) it's that, right? This is a great idea. Or we find out that the poison was bogus. We'll find out in book three. I just, this is what's a little bit frustrating, though, is because when you have the the situation like you had with the whole crossbows at the dock incident, it makes me unsure of whether I can trust what I'm seeing on the page. So I don't know if he's going to pull another cheap shot at the beginning of book three to get Locke out of this. Hmm. It's a valid point. So in your opinion, would having it be, oh, we weren't really poisoned after all, be no, the cheap shot? No, no, no. No, I don't think it would be. I actually don't think it would be. No, I, no. to me, the cheap shot would be some, I don't know, some, un, 
I don't really know what it would be in this scenario. It's more that things happen and I don't really have an explanation for them. And I don't have also, I also don't have a way of really being able to guess how they would end. There's no sort of foreshadowing for me to be able to say, Oh, well that would make sense. That would be a logical outcome here. And that's sort of the way I felt about the way that whole scene ended on the, on the docks. And it's, there have been several other instances like that in this book where something happens, there's some resolution to it that, you know, was sort of unexpected, but you never were put in a position as a reader where you could have reasonably guessed that that would have happened. Right. No, that's totally a valid point. So I actually, if, if it turns out that they weren't poisoned, that's kind of where I'm leaning to it being is that it turns out that they weren't poisoned. Again, I think that defies all logic because Moraine thought they were poisoned. Mm-hmm. And more importantly, the alchemists thought they were poisoned. Right. So so that leads me to believe that they were actually poisoned. But Right, I mean, when you think about it, the best way out of that situation for the alchemist would have been to say, oh, guess what? You weren't really poisoned. Yeah. Just let me go. Yeah, right. So we know... Jean got the antidote. Pretty sure Locke doesn't die in the first chapter of the next book. So there's something else, but I don't have a reasonable way at being able to even guess at it. So one of the reasons why, okay, actually I can't use that because it's a spoiler for other books. So never mind. There are things that will pop up in other books and you're like, okay, I can totally guess you know, that what's going to happen here. Like somebody dies, but everyone's like, I don't think they're really dead. Well, the reason why everybody doesn't think they're really dead and when it turns out that they didn't really die is because there was enough evidence in the book Mm -hmm. for you, if you were reading carefully, to be like, wait a minute, there's all these clues. There's no clues in these books. That's true. I think these books are more built to be like a roller coaster ride. Yeah. And you just kind of are meant to go with it. Yeah. And enjoy whatever character development happens along the way. I I feel like this book, there was a lot more development of the characters and their relationships than in the last book. I will, I will give you that. I will definitely give you that. I think Jean and Locke's characters do continue to grow through this book. And you have this whole experience where... You're saying, oh, they're at each other's throats. It's sort of like you and your high school best friend when you spend too much time together. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and you start to kind of get on each other's nerves. But they learn, instead of it going south the way it is, it leads you to think is going to happen, it creates a stronger relationship between the two of them. And that's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. I don't like it as much as the first book. Uh, You know, I agree. But it's still pretty cool. So I'll be excited to see what you think of the third book, Republic of Thieves. I'm waiting for these things to start tying together. So this is, so the Lies of Locke Lamora, to me, the equivalent is Lost Season 1. That's a, see, I would let go of that. 
equivalent because you're really setting yourself up to be disappointed. And then Red Seas Under Red Skies is Lost Season 2 where I said, this shit's not going anywhere. So I'm really hoping they can pull, he can pull it back in this next book and make it so it's not fucking lost because that show sucked. Yeah, that was a terrible ending. It's all about the ending for me. You are very hard on endings. I am. It was a book you were telling me about recently that you said was one of the best things you ever read, but it had the stupidest ending you ever read. Yeah. And, And I can't think of a book like if you get me early enough in the book, you really get me in. I will just, I will retcon the hell out of whatever stupid ending you put on it. I'll be like, no, it's, I could see that. Yeah. If yeah. You, if you've read Habibi by Craig Thompson, I think that's his name. I think that's the author's name. Yeah. Has some of the most, it's a, a massive graphic novel. You got me one of his. Yeah, Blankets. I blankets, got you. I haven't read it yet. Wonderful. It's wonderful. Yeah, I haven't read it yet. So... There are scenes in uh, Habibi that are, I mean, are just like so wrenchingly beautiful that I'm like, this is just a masterpiece. But it, it has a really messed up ending that just sort of takes me out of it. Mm. It just kind of, and I'm like, what? So it was one of those things where, you know, I read it and, I, you know, in three quarters of the way through, I'm like, this is just amazing. And then by the time you get to the end, you're like, what happened? <laughs> it was go all going so well. But that's okay. Yeah, I am hard on endings. That's for sure. So I'm just saying, just go with it. All right. I'm ready to go with it. I'm, I'm, I'm open-minded about Republic of Thieves. Like in this, and I'm being, I'm coming across as sort of a naysayer. This was not by any means a bad book because goodness knows I can complain with the best of them. If this was really a bad book, oh God, this, you would have heard a lot worse come out of my mouth. We're not complaining. You're analyzing. There's a difference. <laughs> there is. There is. So I, I'm, I'm ready. Are you ready to, to move on? Are you yeah. ready to get into the next phase? We're ready. What are your predictions for book three? Oh my god! Other than you think they're not they're not poisoned. I think I think Sabatha doesn't show up. No, I'm kidding. I think Sabatha shows up. <laughs> uh, I, I I don't I don't have any. This is a this is it's very hard to make predictions in this series. It is. It's very I hard think to it's make. Intentionally made. To kind of keep you guessing. Yeah, and I guess, you know, that's sort of the thing that he's going for, which is absolutely, totally respectable. And he pulls it off. All right. You know, other than like one key thing that I managed to get right, I don't know that I've really accurately predicted a damn thing with any of these books. (laughs) At least not the Scott Lynch ones. Right, yeah. You know, so yeah. So that was our coverage of Red Seas Under Red Skies. That's right. Ta-da! Ta-da! It's officially over. Officially over. So are you ready to hear some interactions from our listeners? Always. Awesome. Outstanding. Favorite part of the podcast. All right. So we had, I put a comment out on Twitter and Facebook saying, hey, 50th episode 
what do you guys think we should do? What do you think we should talk about? What should we cover next? Just to kind of get some folks talking and come up with some interesting new stuff to talk about. So I had a a couple of things that came up. So E.H. Mantel at Scruffy Minds on Twitter said, recommendation for you two lovelies to cover Stormlight Archive. I love that book. I love those books. That is definitely on the short list. That is definitely on the short list for after after the Gentleman Bastards. And Ian James Crone says, I think you should flip the script and review Glenn Cook's Black Company and make the Duchess be the one to have to speculate. Oh, I'm so bad. So bad at speculating. I don't think that's true. I just don't think you've had to do it. Andy Keithley says, you got one vote for Abercrombie's The Blade Itself after Republic of Thieves. And That's a good book, too. It is. And Vimesy74 at Vimesy74 says, just start the next one. Well, yeah. That's the plan. That's the plan. I don't think Vimesy cares. Just just start it. Like, <laughs> I don't care what it is. Just, just do it. So... Ian, uh, coming back to Ian at Ian James Crone in response to what should we talk about in the 50th episode, has a number of different ideas for us. So the first one is reveal the mysterious other podcast. You guys aren't ready for that. It's not going to (laughs) happen. It's just not going to happen. He also says, what about fan casting the gentleman bastards, which we kind of did at the end of the last one. A little bit. I think but, we we talked about a couple of characters. Yeah, because we haven't really fan cast any of the new folks. Right. I mean, I have them set in my mind, but I kind of brought all those up. Who do you have as uh, as Esri? Oh, you know who I had as Esri? Who's that? Okay. If you watched Doctor Who. And I did. The more the recent ones. Did you watch the mm, ones? Then I didn't. With the Victorian <laughs> lizard lady? Yeah, 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 yeah. And and her lesbian maid lover. Yeah. The little dark maid. I like it. I just, she was short and dark haired and spunky. I like, I like Maisie Williams. Oh, I don't know. She's pretty young. Not anymore. Really? She's like 19. Oh, I feel like Ezra needs to be at least 30. What? Right? I think Ezra's like 24. Uh, how old are Locke and John at this like, point? Well, so I think John is a couple years older than Locke. I think Locke is 27, John's 29. Yeah, I feel like they're like they're like pushing like up into 30s, you know, the 30s. Well, they'll and, definitely get cast that way right. because that's what always happens in Hollywood, yeah. which would take Maisie Williams off the board. Fair enough. Right. I'm just saying. Fair enough. Another comment here from Ian James Crone is a recording of the family playing D&D. So a recording of the family playing D&D. Now, we don't, we haven't done any recordings. We did do an episode that we've recorded with the kids all talking about it, and we kind of talked about it, but we recorded it using another set of software, and I have yet to figure out how to freaking use it so that I can actually get it out there. It's just been sitting there in cold storage. Man, that's got it. We got to get that out of the vault. That was a very amusing podcast. Uh, Recording our actual family campaigns would not be amusing, you guys. It's, it's, oh, 
it's an occasional shit show playing yeah. D with kids yeah i don't know how entertaining that would be know. for it's other like, people yeah it's like all right you've fallen into a crevasse well i get out my ladder and i climb up you don't have a ladder yes i do it's right here no you on your sheet you don't have a ladder look it says right here i have a like they just don't understand that it's not just okay fine. i don't know how entertaining it would be anyway yeah. but but it's funny yeah <laughs> so on the facebook group page Catherine stewart says thanks for the shout out in episode 45 just a couple of chapters to read in red seas and red skies and i should be fully caught up by the weekend and then i can actually participate and read the spoilers and she says uh, by the way I'm officially loving the Paper Girls and can't wait for more. That is such a great series. It is, yeah. We're having a lot of fun with that one. Ooh, Katrina Nudson on the Facebook page says, happy birthday, first of all. Oh, thank you. To you. Lots of happy birthdays sent your way. Yes. On that page. Um, She also says, what's your cage match prediction? Devi versus Zamira. Ooh. I love it. I do. So... You want to go first? I I would have to say Devi, unless Zamira somehow has an artifact, like say maybe Elderglass repels sympathy. If there was some kind of weird thing like that. Yeah, I mean, I would have to agree. It would depend on the setup. If it's some sort of weird setup where they're right next to each other and Zamira can get her hands on her really quick, she might have a shot, but... Outs. I mean, overall, magic is going to beat sabers. Yeah, nine times out of ten. And as we know, Debbie is a badass sympathist. So, got to give it to Debbie. I mean, I think they're going to end up drinking together, but... Yeah, I don't think they'd fight. Yeah. There would be a lot of drunken talk about whether or not they might do it to each other, but it would never come to anything. <laughs> All right, so I put out there, what kind of special stuff do we do for our 50th episode? And Theo said, joint episode with the, quote, other podcast. Guys, guys, it's not, it's not going to happen. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Eric uh, says, four words, wild ass speculation extravaganza, which I would say is really all of our episodes. <laughs> Pretty much. Now, we would like to do kind of more of like, a just like huge theory cast, particularly on King Killer stuff. We just haven't gotten to that point yet. Kelly Walsh says, make it a video. You know, we've talked about that in the past. The problem is that, you know, we're both so devastatingly attractive it's that I, I feel we don't want to just be objectified by you guys. You know, it would you know? really take away from the quality of the audio, you know, presentation here. And now everybody else would just, I mean, once they hear our, our voices after that, they're not going to be paying attention to the content. Right, right. Our eyes are up here, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we have talked about doing a video and, and we have tentative plans to, to branch out into that a little bit. Yeah, there are some technological things we have forces. to work out with that for sure. So uh, Theo says, do your five least accurate and five most accurate predictions by the Duke. I don't have five accurate Uh, predictions. (laughs) So, so ones that come to my mind for accuracy were um, a uh, Esri 
dying. Yeah, that was pretty I was, good. That was pretty good because I, I certainly didn't catch it the first time that I went through. Um, for least accurate, the the first one that jumps to mind is Denna being a fae. That's because still unproven. It is. <laughs> she's not a fae. St- that is still unproven. <laughs> I'm standing by that. And, and I, I believe you also predicted that Sabatha was going to show up in this book. I so I have predicted that Sabatha is going to show up. So that's my five least accurate predictions. Every, all five times that I have predicted that Sabbath is going to finally show up. <laughs> Probably including... God damn you, Siri, again? Oh, she's such an attention whore. Jesus, get your own podcast. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't have five, and, I, and unfortunately I didn't have the time to really go through it. It's kind of hard for me to to go through and look at the predictions, because I'm kind of on the other side of it, so like I don't I don't get to react to it as much as, as you guys who have actually read everything do. Because by the time something actually comes true, I'm like, I've kind of moved on. So another thing that Theo said is he said, alright, what is your favorite edition of D&D? Do you have a favorite edition? I don't think you played enough of the different editions to... But I don't want to speak... What was that one we played in college? Uh, I think in college we were probably playing third edition. Yeah, I mean, that's the one That's the one major campaign I've had. I played some in high school, but that that was the game that I had a particular attachment to. Yeah. For me, I still love first edition AD&D. It was broken. It was a lot. It was not well balanced. A lot of stuff that was weird. They had random rules, like when you became a ninth level fighter, you got a keep. Like it didn't matter, like where you came from. That's awesome. You could have been like a back alley scrapper. <laughs> you know, no connections to anything. And when you got to the ninth level, you got a keep. Da da. Now, of course, if you're you know with a good dungeon master, that's not how you're going to do it, you know, but, um, but I just, despite all of the weird quirks and, you know, the issues that they had yet to work out with the game, the first edition was still my favorite. There Mm -hmm. was a lot of just like really rich, interesting things in there, weird, incredibly in-depth charts and discussions about, you know, tiny, minute things that, when you got into the later books, it became a little bit more sanitized, mm-hmm. and it you know the rules uh, definitely got they definitely were better balanced. But I just sort of loved that kind of raw originality of the original AD and D, even mm-hmm. though I would admit to you that it was not as good of a game as the, the later editions. Mm-hmm. He also said, uh, what's the module you had the most fun playing? And I actually never, I rarely ever played any of the kind of published modules because when I was a kid, I was too poor to afford them. And so I had to make up all my own. And so I was usually the guy who was the dungeon master and was the guy who made up my own. I did get to play hordes of the underdark mm-hmm. and that was one that i enjoyed quite a lot never got to finish it 
Um, but I, but I did uh, dungeon master uh, party about halfway through that uh, box set. And that was a lot of fun. So that would probably be my favorite. And then what was your favorite character's name? Do you have a favorite character's name? Oh, I mean, uh, again, that one main campaign that we did in college and I had like the most basic character. <laughs> her, but I, but I was so, I'm so attached to her. Yeah. I think her name was like Brielle. Yeah, and yeah, she yeah. was a, a redheaded ranger. I mean, just like with her little cup of Starbucks and her Ugg boots back practically. <laughs> she was the most, most basic girl character you could come up with. But I remember spending hours just lovingly drawing a picture of her like yeah, yeah. And, and her like leather vest and her sword and everything. And I just thought she was the coolest. She was a ranger. Okay. I had... She knew how to punch people in the face. <laughs> she was everything that I was not. As a person. I had two favorite characters growing up. Yeah. Uh, the first was a wizard who, who was named um, Tacitus Saltheart. Mm-hmm. And he was not evil. He was just a bastard. He was just... I like that. He was just nasty. And um, I just really liked that character. In retrospect, I can look at it now and recognize that he was a Raistlin ripoff from the Dragonlance novels. <laughs> but at the time, I didn't pick up on right. that. And then I had another character who later who I who I enjoyed, who was also kind of basic. He was just a kind of basic human fighter. His name was Galloway Galehair. I remember Galloway Galehair. Yeah, and he could not be killed. I remember him. And it got to the point where Galloway had nothing left and he became suicidal. And so he just charged headlong into every situation that he should not have charged headlong into just to see if maybe this time he could finally die. And somehow he managed to always just barely freaking pull the day out. <laughs> That's a good character. So those are my favorite characters. So we have one new review on iTunes. Somebody came oh, along nice. and gave us a five-star review. It was Fantastic. A, an anonymous review, so I don't know who it is, but you know who you are, and we thank you for that. If you would like to get in touch with us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at the D&D Podcast. That's D as in David, N as in Nancy, D as in David Podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Duke and Duchess. And you can also find our Facebook group page, which is where a lot of the chatter goes on. And just search for the Duke and Duchess Podcast group and you'll find that. If you need advice, if you have a love that's lost, if you're feeling forlorn, you're looking for guidance. Is your lute string broken? <laughs> when you get down to four lute strings, you just can't play it anymore, man. You just have to <laughs> give it up. You can ask for advice, and Dear Duchess will give you advice. If you want to participate in that, email advice at the Duke and Duchess Podcast.com. And that is it. Do you have anything else? That's it. All right. Good Thanks night, for everybody. hanging with us through 50 episodes. Outstanding. Thank you.